whether you are starting a business or running a business, maybe you're producing a podcast like The Kara Golden Show. Let's face it, it's always way harder than one might expect. Lots of little details, meticulous planning, producing product, guest coordination, editing, promoting each episode. It's all a ton of work. Managing merchandise, managing cases and book sales too, layer after layer of complexity. And if you're like me, looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively is the name of the game. That's why I'm going to let you in on a little secret. ShipStation, the tool that is here to help you and you need to know all about it. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me to manage orders from anywhere and print shipping labels with just a click. Seriously, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable. With discounts up to 89% off carrier rates, you can't go wrong. Significant savings. And who doesn't want that? An easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses? Not much churn either. 98% of them stay with ShipStation because it truly works. ShipStation is it. So if you're ready to streamline your shipping process and focus more on what you love, head over to ShipStation.com the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I am so, so thrilled to have my next guest here. We have Harley Finkelstein, who is the president of Shopify, and he's also an amazing, amazing entrepreneur. He's also an attorney, and in addition to being the president of Shopify, not acting attorney, I guess, but way back when, And he founded his first company at age 17 while a student at McGill, and then he went on to law school, and Harley is not the founder of Shopify, but joined them super, super early. In fact, he was store 137 and soon joined the team at Shopify full-time to help them build it into the world's number one e-commerce platform. And in 2021, the Shopify ecosystem generated, I through my research, was $440 billion in economic value. Is that correct? Yeah, 
Crazy. Crazy. And I can't wait to hear more about his journey as an entrepreneur and really helping to scale Shopify to become what it is today. So welcome, Harley. Thank you for having me. This is a real honor to be on your show. Well, thank you. And as I mentioned to you, I, I'm such a huge fan of you. I've seen a few of your interviews and I was really, really excited to get connected. Oh, thank you with you and obviously super excited about Shopify. We've uh, Hint has been partnered with Shopify for quite some time. And prior to getting on Shopify, I was uh, I sort of grew up in direct to consumer from my AOL days. So I've watched what you guys have built at Shopify and been very, very excited by everything oh, thank, that you're doing. Thank you for saying that. It's interesting because Hint, obviously, uh, you know, great Shopify merchant, but also I think at least in the early days of, of Hint, my recollection is that one of your main demographics was, you know, tech entrepreneurs. Yeah. That there was like this, I don't know if it was meant to be the case, but like tech entrepreneurs sort of embraced it. And and uh, and I, I, I'm curious, I mean, at some point, hopefully we can talk about this, but like how that even happened, because that is sort of like such an interesting demographic to have your product be loved by. I'll tell you really quickly, really, really short story. I mean, we ended up getting into Google very, very early. I think it was 2006. And they did not have beverages. They did not have refrigerators or micro kitchens. And I was meeting with a guy, Omid Kordasani, who was there. And I knew him from my previous uh, role. And he worked with my husband actually at Netscape. And uh, he thought it was super fun what we were doing, that we were starting a beverage company, thought it was crazy. Like, why, why are you guys doing this? You're both in tech. Why in the world? And he said, you know, we just hired chefs because there's not enough restaurants around our uh, home office. And so maybe they need some water. So we got connected with Charlie. Amazing. Uh, the chef and and the rest. And then I guess as every Google employee left, as they often do to go do their own thing or start new companies or go work at other companies, they obviously would request, hey, I'd like to get some more of the hint water. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, this is sort of a lesson learned along the way too. I think we said yes more than no. So mm -hmm. those employees would have their own startup. There'd be three people. They just wanted us to come and deliver. We didn't have minimums. And we just said, you know, sure. We'll do it. And so sometimes they'd have me delivering it in my Grand Cherokee. Sometimes they'd have other people. And I'm sure you have moments like that, too, in the early days of Shopify, where you just have to figure it out and you have to get into the nitty gritty and just say yes more than no. And that's how you end up getting these relationships and building sort of the superstar companies. Yeah. Although a lot of those uh, yeses, I find um, in the early days, at least you think they're free. And then you find out much later they're not free because you've basically committed yourself to something that maybe you shouldn't commit yourself to. Um, <laughs> and so I think every entrepreneur needs to say yes a lot more than no when they're just getting started. But at a certain point, there needs to be some, you know, some scaffolding or some, totally. uh, you know, some um, some barriers around kind of your your directions to make sure you don't go off course. The amount of people that have asked us at Shopify to build, you know, restaurant software or to build software for the service industry. Um, is, is probably in the thousands or tens of thousands requests. And so when, you know, enough people ask you to build like restaurant software, um, you begin to think about it and yeah. then you begin to think, well, maybe, maybe it's just a, a small extension of Shopify. And I think had we started to build restaurant software years ago, um, we probably would not be, you know, 10% of all e-commerce e today, um, and, and, and be, you know, be as dominant as we are. So there is sort of that, that fine balance between say yes, because, you know, you're ambitious and you want new opportunities, but also making sure you stay, you stay somewhat focused. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's uh, the one thing that I'll add to that is that 
having to tell people that we're actually going to charge for delivery now. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> that there's definitely expectation that. management is funny like that. Right, right. Exactly. So let's start at the beginning of, of your career and just get some background on this. So I would imagine that you were always tinkering with entrepreneurship. And at 17, you started your first company. But give me a little taste of kind of what you were doing. Yeah. I mean- How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long, term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell, or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? 
you can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. You know, I'd always been tinkering with entrepreneurship, but not for, I think, the reason that most people did. I think most people start as entrepreneurs to solve some big problem. And that wasn't my case. For me, I was just trying to solve my own problems. And it turned out that entrepreneurship, this tool called entrepreneurship, was a really, really great tool for that. Um, When I was 13 years old, I was living in Canada, which is where I was born. I, I moved to South Florida a little bit later, but Grew up in Canada, and um, when you're 13 and you're uh, Jewish like I am, you end up going to a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs. And every Friday or every Saturday night, I go to these bar mitzvahs, and by far the coolest people there were these DJs who were getting the crowd to like you know do a conga line, and they were playing amazing music, and they were just they were fundamentally modifying the energy of the room almost on a you know every three minutes the energy would change, and they were doing it with their voice and through music selection and through lighting. And it just seemed like magic to me. And so I just, I really, really want to be a DJ, not because I cared about music, but because DJs to me seemed at that time like like magicians. And because I didn't have any DJ skills and I was 13 and I looked like I was 10 years old, um, I wanted to be a DJ. No one would hire me. And so my dad had the suggestion that I should hire myself and start my own DJ company. And I ended up DJing like 500 bar and bat mitzvahs between the ages Amazing. of like 13 and I don't know, 18 or 19. But where it really, the rubber really hit the road for me on entrepreneurship was when I was 13, after that sort of bar mitzvah period, we moved down to South Florida and went to high school there. I came back to Canada to go to McGill in 2001. I was 17. You had 9-11 happen. You had like this crazy market reset happen. And my parents lost everything. And I was sort of, once again, reminded that a great way for me to solve this problem, which was my parents have no money. I want to, I want to support myself. I want to, my, my dad had left for a while and I want to support my mom and two much younger sisters that I would use this tool called entrepreneurship one more time. And so I did. Uh, a friend of mine told me that McGill University, I think he, the, the quote was, I think he said they're like, they buy about $25,000 a year worth of promotional t-shirts that say McGill on the, on the front. And I thought that was a cool business because Montreal iconically had been and historically had been a very, very good place to, had, had a very large apparel industry or schmutz business. And so um, I ended up starting to make t-shirts for McGill. And then that turned into McGill and Concordia. Then eventually turned into you know, another school in Halifax, another school in BC. 
And by the end of undergrad, my little business was making t-shirts for like, you know, over 40 Canadian universities. And, and again, I wasn't necessarily passionate about t-shirts per se, but I did love the fact that this tool called entrepreneurship was a way to me to solve problems as they came about. And actually my grandmother, um, who's 90 years old, I, I had dinner with her this past weekend. Uh, she lives in Montreal and we, we live in Ontario. I did with my grandmother uh, this past weekend and she showed me a business card and the business card says Harley Finkelstein food critic. And I, I couldn't remember why I would make business cards. It said food so critic. Funny. And she told me that when I was 15 or 16 years old, I wanted to go to these restaurants that were like, you know, kind of fancy and they would never let me in because I looked like I was a kid and I didn't have very much money. And so I created these like fake business cards that said I was a food critic and I would go and give it to them. And I completely forgot about this. And my grandmother actually gave me the business card and it just says, it's his best of the best food critic, Harley Finkelstein. So you got free and I, meals. And I, I actually, I don't, I don't even think I'd worked anywhere, but, <laughs> but uh, there was a lot of chutzpah and audacity there from an early age. But entrepreneurship for me was, was this tool that I can pull out anytime I want to solve a problem. And, and the reason just to sort of, we can go back a, a bit of time to the early days of Shopify, but just to fast forward till today, the reason that I feel so privileged and so excited and, and grateful that, that, you know, I'm able to lead Shopify and, and have been doing, been doing so for about a third of my life uh, so far is that Shopify fundamentally is the entrepreneurship company. The entire mission of the company is to increase the surface area of entrepreneurship around the world. And the reason that that is the Venn diagram overlap of like my personal mission and my professional mission are completely aligned in the overlap area that the Venn diagram overlap is Shopify because I just, I think entrepreneurship is the greatest equalizer. So you went on to law school a few years later. So McGill and then law school. So the t-shirt company was at age 17, right? Mm -hmm. And then after law school, store 137 was what? So I moved from Montreal to Ottawa to go to law school. The rationale or the objective of law school was not to become a lawyer. I know your husband's a lawyer as well. Um, but actually, I went to law school because I want to be a better entrepreneur. And a mentor of mine convinced me that the, one of the best things I can do to sharpen up some of my entrepreneurship skills was law school. And he talked about that law school would do things for me, like it would help me write better. Mm -hmm. And it would help me with critical reasoning. And it would help me with debate. And it would help me you know, be able to read a lot more, but, but pull out the one or two sentences that is of critical value. And I thought that that was very compelling. I was 21 at the time when I finished undergrad and I, my, this t-shirt business that I had, it was making some money, but it wasn't good. It wasn't this world changing company. And so I ended up moving to Ottawa to go to law school. That's where my mentor was teaching law at the time and ended up meeting, um, Toby, uh, who, uh, is the founder of Shopify. He had just moved here a year or two earlier from Germany couldn't get a job because he was a new immigrant, um, and but he was able to start a business. And so when he moved here from Germany to Canada, ended up selling snowboards on the, on the internet, couldn't find good software. This is a pretty well-known story now, but couldn't find good software. So wrote his own piece of software to sell these snowboards. And then people started asking him if they can use the software to sell their own products. And I was one of those people. Um, in law school, it turned out that the t-shirt business that I built in undergrad at McGill wasn't scaling very well. In undergrad, I didn't have to go to class, and so I was able to show up face-to-face -face, you know, at the University of British Columbia or Dalhousie University or, or University of Montreal, and I was able to sell them in person. In undergrad, you know, showing up for the exam is all that really mattered. In law school, it was quite different. Attendance mattered, and so 
I was actually forced to show up to class, which meant that I needed a different type of business model. I needed a business in law school that would run concurrently while I was in class. And the wholesale, you know, sales cycle, in-person sales model just didn't work for me. I really needed to build something that, that would run concurrently and would run virtually. And so after meeting Toby and hearing about his story of, of, of building this great piece of software to sell things online, I ended up becoming one of the first users of it. Um, and uh, I, I built a, a direct-to-consumer licensed t-shirt business. We sold Batman t-shirts and Spider-Man t-shirts. And we didn't have the global rights to it because we couldn't afford it, but we had limited rights. So we had rights to particular graphics, particular logos for particular geographies. And simply by leveraging Google AdWords and figuring out who the great bloggers were on the topics of, of comic book characters and, and, and superheroes, uh, we were able to build a really great online business that most importantly made money while I was in class. And, and that was my introduction to Shopify in 2006. So how did it come up or what drew you into actually joining Shopify then? I knew after law school, um, I went to Toronto to practice law for 10 months just to give it a shot, just to see what it was like. And I hated it. It was the worst experience of my life. I wasn't at some big fancy law firm, but I, I wasn't at a small law firm. It was a sort of a mid-sized firm. It was a good firm and they did good business. It was a sort of corporate commercial firm, but it just, it was boring. Um, and it was boring, not because of the work itself. It was boring because it felt like there was no room for ambition. It felt like there was no room for creativity. The work was incredibly regimented. The work was very much um, you know, uh, connect the dots, step one, step two, step three, step four, you're done. And the work allocated to you was proportionate to the amount of time you've been at the law firm or, hmm. uh, your, your years of call. So if you're a third year lawyer, the work given to you was a third year lawyer. And it just, what I always valued about entrepreneurship was this idea that it was more meritocratic than almost anything else. Meaning it didn't matter, you know, who your mom or dad were, or what your last name was, it didn't matter how much money you had. What mattered fundamentally for entrepreneurship, to me at least, was how much value are you adding? And if you were adding sufficient amount of value, you were going to be successful. That was not the case in, law, in the law firm environment. And so about four months in, I started calling Toby and telling him that uh, I really would love to join him. And at the time, there were just a handful of others, mostly engineers, and, and help build out this thing into a real business. And so I, you know, after, I guess, harassing him enough, he, he said, you know, come join us. And that was that was late 2009, early 2010. And so when you joined, um, what was your role? I was jack of all, I mean, yeah, I was a Swiss army knife. Um, I, I was, it. we didn't have a CFO. We didn't have a CMO. We didn't really have much. It was, it was a bunch of really, really smart people who were building really um, elegant, very smart software. And my job was to drum up business and it was to tell the world about what we were doing. And it was to kind of help on everything related to, you know, the commercial side of things. Um, I was also the lawyer because I was, I, I, by that point, I was officially quote unquote, a lawyer. I was called to the bar. And so my job was like, just like entrepreneurship, find ways to add value. And, and, and I loved it. It was amazing. I mean, there was no, you know, there were no KPIs or MBOs or whatever you want to call it. There were no, you know, I, I didn't necessarily have a particular thing to focus on. Um, but what it gave me was a deep understanding of every aspect of the business, because mm -hmm. when you play the role of a Swiss army knife, you have to spend time in every department. So I, I deeply understood what the designers wanted, and I and I understood what the developers wanted. I understand what the product people wanted. I understood what the support reps wanted, and and so it gave me this great foundation, um, which even today that I I think I I I use and, and I I utilize um, 
every every hour of the day to understand how to make Shopify better. But in those days, there wasn't, you know, the roles were add value. Um, and and the idea of swim lanes was ridiculous because we were all kind of playing water polo together. I love that story. Well, and I love talking to people who were at companies, whether they're a founder or not, really early because there's a consistent thread amongst them that they just kind of did everything. I have shared the story when I was uh, in the early days of direct-to-consumer at America Online and and wanted to get a bookseller and ended up going to Jeff Bezos. He was just this little guy. He was definitely in third or maybe even fourth or fifth place amongst booksellers. And he's told me the only way he could meet with me is if I'd help him build bookshelves. And he had gotten the uh, you know, the poles, the plastic poles that you put together from Home Depot. And I said, Jeff could probably still build a bookshelf. <laughs> right? That's amazing. Today. That's awesome. And I think, you know, what you've described is your curiosity allowed you to sort of be able to do everything in, in the company or learn how to do everything in the company. And I think that that's a really, really valuable thing to have around a company at every stage, but as you grow to be able to really understand what these roles are. So, so Shopify is a public company, and we mentioned this in the intro, but in 2021, the Shopify ecosystem generated $440 billion in economic value. Amazing. Crazy, crazy. Obviously, Shopify benefited greatly from the pandemic. I felt like that was a time when everybody, if they weren't uh, setting up their direct-to-consumer play. They were definitely uh, behind the eight ball and probably trying to figure out, does anyone know Harley? And can anyone help me, you know, figure this thing out? What are your predictions now for commerce, direct-to-consumer overall, as people are starting to hopefully go out and, and start getting some normalcy? I mean, do you think it's going to slow? What do you see out there right now? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. You know, when the pandemic hit, call it March 2020 or so, something in the neighborhood of like 12 to 14% of all retail was done online. The rest was done offline. And overnight with, you know, shelter in place orders and, and, and stay at home orders, every physical retail had to be shut down. And so those that were prepared, those retailers, those brands, those merchants that had an online component, they simply activated that. And the next day was... You know, it was still difficult for them, but they had a new channel to sell to. Those that didn't have um, an online store, in many cases, rushed to Shopify to, mm -hmm. to open up that online store, and they really focused on it. Well, now that things are reopening again, I think what you're seeing is you're sort of seeing a, a rebalancing of everything. But there is one big change. The big change is that those that opened up online stores during the pandemic, now that the pandemic is, you know, towards the end of it, I think, um, I think most would agree on that. Um, they're not shutting down their online stores. Now they have two channels. Mm -hmm. They are by their very nature, a multi-channel business. And that gives them a huge opportunity. And so, you know, many people talk about whether or not the pandemic, you know, created 10 years or two years or one year worth of acceleration in, 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 in e-commerce over, you know, three months. I think that's the wrong, that's the wrong lens to view this at. What the pandemic fundamentally did was it reminded every business that they need to be able to serve customers however and wherever those customers want to make the purchase. Mm -hmm. So every single surface area where consumers are spending their time, um, and this was 300 years ago, you know, the place where every retailer, every merchant sold was the town square because that's where consumers spent their time. 
Whereas now, sort of on the end of the pandemic period, consumers are in store, they're online, they're in person, they're on social media platforms, they're on marketplaces, they're at farmers markets, they're everywhere. And so the brands I think that want that are going to be the most successful will one have a deep understanding of who their customers are, deep empathy for my customer looks like this, my future customer may look like that, and I'm going to make sure however and wherever they want to buy, there is an easy way for them to make the purchase. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think this concept of direct to consumer, which uh, frankly, you've been talking about longer than anyone has, um, (laughs) it is not a fat anymore. It is now steady state. It is the way retail used to be done. Going back to my example, the town square 300 years ago, the baker sold their own bread. The cobbler sold their own shoes. There was no intermediation. It was only until 1876 or so when Wanamaker's department store, John Wanamaker opened up his store in Philadelphia, where he began to put a bunch of different brands from different manufacturers under one roof. And so began the era of intermediaries or intermediation. And that's where you sort of had these department stores all blow up and and, and get big. And, and frankly, for the last you know 150 years, that's kind of what retail has done. But then in the early 90s, you began to see this reemergence of direct-to-consumer with the advent of, of e-commerce and, and online shopping. And then people were skeptical. Are we going to go back to e-commerce? Are we going to, or is, it, is it going to be DTC? Is there space for retail and, 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 and resellers? And fundamentally, one, I think direct-to-consumer will, will be steady state. You'll see more and more brands decide that that's how they want to um, transact with their end consumer. But the second thing is there's also going to be room for wonderful retailers who curate who sell other people's products, but they have to add value. So a great example is my favorite hoodie is Blue Salt. Um, Blue Salt is an amazing. I think they make the, the nicest um, sort of mer- it is uh, a machine nice washable product. sort of cashmere stuff. They're awesome. Great. Uh, Lindsay Benson's the uh, founder and CEO. Amazing entrepreneur. I, I buy my stuff directly from Lindy, directly from Blue Salt, because I think their online store is amazing. But if she were to sell her product at a third-party retailer, at a Neiman Marcus or a Nordstrom or a Barney's or a Bergdorf or something. If I walked in there and I saw it, but that particular clerk at that store, that particular store started showing me, you know, some sort of like this hoodie versus that one. Maybe they introduced me to new versions of this hoodie. They showed me new product extensions. If you bought this hoodie, look at this t-shirt as well. If that retailer that was reselling Blue Salt on Lindy's behalf was adding more value, than I would be getting if I went direct on the online store, I'd be okay with that too. What I'm not okay with, however, is going to one of these you know, third-party websites where they're selling blue salt and buying blue salt at the same level of, or, or at the same or less level of engagement and service because I prefer to give all of the money directly to the maker. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a long answer to a short question. I think the future retail one is retail everywhere. I think the brands that understand this will be most successful. And you're seeing, I mean, even, you know, the folks over at uh, Joey and Tim over at Allbirds, great entrepreneurs. Allbirds is this massive success story built entirely on Shopify, by the way, like just really ex- exceptional story, great direct to consumer, but they're also selling Nordstrom's now. And that's a great thing for them because it means that they can introduce Allbirds to people that might not otherwise walk into their store in Soho or stumble on their online store. So I think retail everywhere is going to happen. I think more and more of these brands are going to be omni-channel. And I think eventually we will stop talking about omni-channel because it's going to be like talking about 
the color television. Mm-hmm. Every business that is successful will fundamentally be omni-channel. And it may be two channels, maybe online and in-store, or maybe nine channels, and they may be selling on Spotify, and they may be selling also on TikTok, and they may be selling also on Google Shopping, and maybe at the back of an Uber at some point, um, we put a screen and that turns into a virtual shopping mall too. We're going to be more channel agnostic, and we're going to be far less concerned of of how to buy as consumers. We're just going to buy however is most convenient for us. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think there's a couple of things that you said. First of all, I think the consumer since the pandemic is more in control of where they're going to purchase things. So if you're not online, I think everybody woke up and said, oh, wait, I I'm out of stock and stores, stores are closed. And so therefore I can't sell anything. And so that really sort of opened up a whole topic that I've been talking about for years that they'll just forget about you and they'll walk away because they're not going into those stores. But then I think that the other piece that you mentioned is the data. And I think that that's the piece that so many people are not really digging into. They're figuring out, okay, I'm doing pretty well. I'm spending you know, X in order to do this and it's working or it's not working. But what we figured out at Hint was that we have Hinton, lots of retailers, uh, big box, you know, club, all of that, but they're buying from our direct-to-consumer store, but then they're also going into Costco as long as we have a different item. And at Costco, you'll have different items. You'll also have, you'll have bulk, yep. right? You'll be able to buy more quantity. There was totally. a reason for me to buy Hint in Costco versus online and direct. And and the data piece is really important. I'll give you, um, I, I don't know if I should be sharing this, but I will anyway. My anniversary is next week, October 13th. Um, my my ninth year wedding anniversary is coming up. Congrats. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I love my wife very much. She is uh, the greatest thing in my life, uh, or along with my children, I should say. And uh, her favorite jewelry brand is, it's called Stephanie Gottlieb. Um, and Stephanie Gottlieb is an amazing jewelry designer. She's on Instagram, but she has a beautiful online store. I think she also has a, a physical location in New York City, although I've never been. Every year around this time, I get an email from Stephanie Gottlieb. And it says, hey, don't forget, your anniversary is coming up. I told her that one time six years ago. And I look like the husband of the year every year because, I mean, one, like, I, I, like one, Stephanie tells me what Lindsay has purchased or what I've bought for Lindsay in the past. She also knows what else Lindsay has purchased. So one, she's reminding me that it's my anniversary because she has the information. It's, it's easily available. Two, she knows what I bought last year. She also knows what my wife has purchased. So she gives me a product recommendation that is so rich and so interesting that it makes it easy for me to be like to, to buy the best gift ever. Um, as long as Stephanie Gottlieb and her team continue to do that, I'm going to continue to buy from them. And what we're talking about here is not difficult. The information is is all in her CRM, uh, which is built into Shopify. You know, it's like it, it's free for twenty nine dollars a month. You get that information, and all she's doing is being more proactive about it. Um, in the sort of intro of, the, of this call before we started recording, you talked about. My little tea side hustle, which is Firebelly Tea. Mm-hmm. Um, what I started doing is every time I get a notification that I have a return customer from the Shopify admin, I just send them an email and say thank you. I noticed that you've you've purchased multiple times now. I don't ask for anything in return. I don't I don't sell them anything. There's no coupon code. I just say thank you, and I'm able to do that in literally a matter of seconds because the Shopify already feeds it to me. Often that email that I send out turns my relationship from one of transactional from a, a brand to a consumer into more of like, oh my, oh, this is like, like it's cool that that the the owner, the founder of this store 
message totally. me. And yeah. it's one line. Thank you for buying multiple times. If you bought once, great. If you bought more than once, I know you like my product. And that means so much to me. And the amount of low-hanging fruit that exists in retail and commerce and entrepreneurship, doing the exact same thing that I'm doing and Stephanie Gottlieb is doing, and, and you obviously have been doing for a long time, that is incredible. Totally. I mean, it's hard for people who don't own their own store, like if you're selling to a Costco, for example, but I think what you're talking about too is getting that relationship with the consumer and trying to tie that together and measure it. And it definitely is happening right now. That's my prediction for the future. I think more and more people will be focusing on the data even more so than they are now. So we're coming up on Black Friday, Cyber Monday. What are some of the key things that you see that people should be getting ready to do? Uh, first of all, I think it's starting. F I mean, I feel earlier. like every year we say this, but um, it just keeps starting earlier and earlier. And that's a good thing. What it means is you can build up real momentum. And the brands that I watch carefully, who I think do Black Friday, Cyber Monday really well, um, brands like Gymshark, for example, brands like Bombas, Tommy John Underwear. Um, these are some of the brands that I watch because I think they're just like, they're so good at this stuff. Yeah. You know, our, our, our mutual friend, Nick Sharma, for example, uh, he's, he built, um, feastables for Mr. Uh, for Mr. Beast. who's like you know, the biggest YouTuber on the planet watching brands like that to see what they're doing is always so inspiring. And so, you know, one of the things that Gymshark did, I think a year or two ago is during black Friday, their store went black. You couldn't buy anything. And you're like, well, why would they do that? Like, that's so weird that they wouldn't take advantage. Well, what they were doing is they were just building up this anticipation. And then the Tuesday or, or the Saturday, they opened it up again. This, again, this is not for everyone. But going back to what I said earlier, this is where it's really important to have a deep understanding of who you're selling to. And for the Gymshark customers, they love those type of gimmicks. They love those types of marketing uh, deployments. Um, so one is, I think, you know, look at a bunch of stores you admire and see what they're doing. You don't have to take their ideas, but you may be influenced or you may be inspired by what they're doing. That's first. Second is, as I said, starting much, much earlier. What are you going to do in anticipation of this holiday season? The third thing is people are become rather obsessed with shipping and logistics and delivery, I think, as consumers. Um, and we actually have a, a we have Shopify logistics now, which which we want to make it so that merchants on Shopify never have to think about logistics. It's just it's done really easily. Where, where most people, I think, get it wrong, however, is that they assume that what every consumer is looking for is one day free shipping. And that is just not the case. The numbers do not support that. What consumers really want is they want to be able to properly anticipate when the product is coming to them. They want to know if I were today, is it going to be here before the weekend? It's Monday today. Is it going to be here you know, before the weekend? Because I want to use it on the weekend. That matters more than whether I get it in 24 hours. Now, if you're, you know, Instacart or DoorDash, timing probably does matter. If I need, you know, toothpaste uh, and I ran a toothpaste, I probably need to get it within the hour. But other than that, if you're talking about products, a lot of the products we're talking about on, 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 this, on this episode, anticipation matters more than speed. And I think that's something that, that uh, a lot of brands don't get. Maybe the last one I would say is um, this idea of like cross-border. I think that, um, a lot of brands don't have a really good way of this, maybe back to the empathy piece of understanding who their customers are from an international perspective. There are way, way too many businesses and brands who have a one size fits all when it comes to selling. And, um, we actually, we have a product called Shopify markets, which, which helps with this, which is if you're selling to, if you're a Canadian tea company and you want to sell, um, to Germany, 
Of course, it has to be translated. That's obvious. But also, the way that that most Germans purchase is different. For example, the payment options you have to you, sh- you should have a debit card option simply because the proclivity to use debit cards is much higher there than it would be in a place like the U.S. where credit cards are dominant. And if you want to sell to India, cash and delivery is going to be a lot more prevalent. So understanding not just who you are as a brand, your mission, your culture, but also understanding who you're selling to and how they want to purchase is also really important. Um, Those are some of the things that sort of in anticipation of Black Friday, Cyber Monday, I would be thinking about as an entrepreneur. From a a macro perspective, um, I think for the last year or so, you saw a shift. The reason that I think, you know, Costco and, and, and some of the discount retailers had such a big you know, early 2022 from a business perspective, sales perspective, was consumers sort of shifted back to more staples and necessities, things I need. And I think now one of the things you're seeing, whether it's with the airlines or it's with travel and the hotel com- the hotels, um, you are seeing a shift back to a, a healthier balance between what do I need and what do I want. And I think this Black Friday, Cyber Monday will be the first official healthy Black Friday, Cyber Monday in the last three years since the pandemic started. And I think you're going to see more people buying things they really love and really care about as opposed to what I think we saw last year, which was mostly staples. Are you seeing any categories in particular that are way down? I know everyone sort of thinks the home office setup was big last year and down now. I'm not seeing that as well. Um, so that that's not the case. I mean, I think athleisure had a really, really big moment during Black Friday, Cyber Monday. But I think now that people are not working out at home anymore because they want to be out of the house, they're working out in gyms and at yoga studios, that's still working really well. Um, It feels like some of the items, like during the pandemic, you know, we're all sort of building up our home offices here. I bought a bunch of like uh, bare bricks and there's some cause over there, um, building up these things in our, in our, in our space and art that we love. And I think there was sort of an inclination that maybe that was going to go away as people left and went back to offices. And I still think those are doing really, really well. I think that people like were introduced to new artists and new art and new forms of, of decoration through the pandemic. And I think that's long lasting. Um, what do I think? I mean, cosmetics has always done very well this time of year. I think it'll do exceptionally well apparel. Um, you know, we see brands, uh, for example, that uh, like Kith, um, some of these collaborations are getting so interesting. I mean, Kith is one of my favorite brands on the planet. I love that too. And a week or two ago, they did a collaboration with Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld has done two collaborations in his entire life. The first one was very famously American Express, where they created the black card, the Centurion card for him. Um, I think he made a joke. The story is like he made a joke about it and they made it. Uh, his second one is with Kith. This week, Kith is doing a collaboration with BMW. There's sort of this interesting, Daniel Arsham is doing, one of my favorite artists, is doing a collaboration with Kohler, which makes like sinks, like like sinks and toilets. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's this really interesting collision right now between content and commerce and brand. And I think, uh, I, I'm here for it. I think it's, it's from a consumer perspective, it's a really interesting time to observe these things. In fact, going back to John Wanamaker in 1876, I think that retail got really boring for a long, long time. You know, in the last 10 years, the most exciting thing was like every retailer, physical retailer brought in a DJ. Some of them, that was a good idea. Most of them had no business bringing in a DJ. It didn't fit their brand. Every other retailer brought in a coffee shop. Some should have coffee shops. Most should not. It doesn't fit their brand. But now it feels like there's a return to a uniqueness and a deep understanding of my identity. My my brand speaks for this. Therefore, here's what I'm going to do. And, you know, Palace Skateboard, one of my favorite brands, in their stores, they have half pipes because it's a skateboard brand. They should have a half pipe. 
but the gap or old navy should not have a half pipe they should have something different they should have you know like a, a, a play structure for kids because a lot of parents go there with their children um so understanding that stuff i think is going to make for a richer retail experience well and i think you also touched on the uh, limited editions and scarcity is okay. We've seen it with lots of different brands, but when they run out, you know, you've got a land grab, right? That goes on. I mean, we've definitely seen it with smash ups on with hint where we'll throw two flavors together and we say when it's gone, it's gone. And I mean, we can literally calculate when that's going to happen. So I think that that is, uh, that's definitely a trend that I think is here to stay. You touch on logistics because I think logistics is such a hot button for people. And definitely during the pandemic, you as a merchant, you thought that you were getting stuff delivered in the next couple of days. And then, I don't know, it'd be lost in some UPS or FedEx warehouse somewhere and you wouldn't get it for a couple of weeks. What do you see happening with like last mile delivery. And obviously Amazon's gotten into that business, but do you think that that's something that you guys might be, get into or? Our, our, our version our version's a bit different. We don't think we need to do everything ourselves. So for example, we have, uh, as part of logistics, we have something called SFN, Shopify um, Fulfillment Network, where we have these distribution centers, fulfillment centers all over the US. The vast majority we don't own. Uh, there are third parties. What we do own is we, we build software in which to put them all on a network. So you as a consumer, you as a merchant, you can place your products anywhere. And every time an order comes in on your Shopify store, it triggers that logistics center to ship out your product on your behalf. Our goal, our vision for logistics is not to go after this like one day free shipping. It's to make it so that every small business and every medium-sized business can offer the same type of anticipation of, of, of package delivery that the large companies provide. We don't have to own it ourselves. We think by partnering with them and using software, we can make it so that you as a merchant, you as a brand, you just don't have to think about it. Yeah. And that is actually, we think, the the real value to our entire logistics, you know, solution. It's not to sort of compete with one, you know, one logistics company versus other. It's so that when you use Shopify, you don't have to think about that. In the same way that when you use Shopify, you don't have to think about, you know, whether or not, you know, how to, you don't have to think about negotiating your rates on credit card trend, uh, payments or, or, or your merchant account. We'll do that on your behalf. You don't have to think about capital. If you need capital after a certain, you know, amount of sales go through, we can we can pretty much underwrite you on our own and we can give you capital. You don't have to think about moving from online store to offline store. You can just activate the point of sale channel. More and more, running a business, whether it's a beverage company or a tea company or a software company. We all get caught up in having to do a lot of things that isn't really in our core competencies. And so more and more what we're trying to do is if you make amazing mugs, like my friends at Ember, which make this amazing mug that's always at 148 degrees, I believe, which is like my favorite temperature to drink coffee and tea, um, focus on making the best mugs that stay warm or stay cold, depending on what you're drinking. Let us focus on everything else. And, and, and we think we can do a really good job of that, but we don't need to own it all ourselves. We can do so in a way that is very much asset light, but leverages technology. People always think that successful entrepreneurs uh, just wave their magic wand and it all just kind of happened. I mean, Harley knew exactly what was going to happen here and uh, everything turned out perfect. No hard times, no failures along the way, but we all know that that really isn't true. So I always ask, when was a time when you just really felt like, I'm in trouble? We've got some hard stuff going on. It's going to be uh, you know, really hard to dig our way out of it. And what lessons did you learn from the experience? 
You're you're right. I mean, Kara, every great entrepreneur that I know, we come on these shows and on these podcasts and do these media things, and we talk about our successes, but we often don't talk about the failures. So it's great that you actually ask these questions. Um, after when I was in undergrad, after the teacher business started to do well, I began to think that like I could do no harm that I was a really great entrepreneur. And it turns out I was not. I mean, I was okay entrepreneur, and I've 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 gotten better over the years, but. I had a slipper company that failed miserably and I had a poker chip company that failed miserably and I had a watch winder company that failed miserably. A lot of what the failures teach us is it becomes the asset on the things that are successful. Um, one that's a little more personal for me is, you know, before when, when we, when Lindsay and I, my wife and I had our first child, um, we used to go on walks around our neighborhood here in Ottawa and there was no ice cream shop. Hmm. And, uh, we always used to go for coffee and look next to the coffee shop and say, we wish there was an ice cream shop here. And there wasn't. So eventually, Lindsay, my wife, and I, my wife and I decided that we should think about starting an ice cream business. And and it was her business. She, I shouldn't take any credit for it. She decided she was going to start. I was just going to kind of help her out. And I remember when the ice cream business started to take off, uh, I was like, hey, we should open up two and three shops. And I was like, we should do maybe five shops. We should franchise this thing. And I remember she, she said to me, like, I just want to have this one ice cream shop. And the reason I, I raise this is because what I had to understand was everyone's motivation for starting something is very, very different. For me, Shopify is a very personal pursuit, even though it's a big, you know, multi-billion dollar company with a ten with ten thousand people that work with us. Um, it's very personal to me. For her, the ice cream shop was also very personal, but it wasn't personal from a scale perspective or an ambition perspective. It was personal because she wanted to gift this coffee shop business to the community. Excuse me, this ice cream shop business to the community. She wanted people to have ice cream, delicious ice cream when they went on walks. And it just reminded me that, um, one, we should talk about our failures more often because it allows us, it allows other people to learn from those failures. And 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 there should be more commentary about the things that, that didn't work out. But two, even in terms of my own marriage where I've, where I have failed is where, um, I thought I was helping Lindsay and expanding her ice cream business. And it turned out I wasn't, I was causing her far more stress. And actually during the pandemic, we shut down the ice cream shop and, uh, because everything was getting shut down. And then as things began to reopen, she basically, she's like, look, she's a, a psychotherapist by trade. She's like, I want to go back to, to being a psychotherapist and I want to focus on children and, and help children with, with therapy. And, and so one of the things I'm trying to get better at is one, thinking about as I've gone through my journey, what have been the things that have helped me, one of the things that have that have hurt me. And a lot of things that have helped me along my journey has been a lot of those failures. But the second thing is there are times where people start these things because they're ambitious and because they they're hungry and they want more and they want to make money or they want to build a and they're all oftentimes where the pursuit of that entrepreneurial venture is simply about um a gift to the community for a period of time. And, um, I hope that, uh, even, you know, Shopify has obviously has been amazing and, and has changed my life and changed my family's life, my wife and I's life. However, um, we still like to take risks. It's the reason why we start these tea companies. And it's the reason why, you know, uh, we've invested in a bunch of beverage companies that we love. And, and are these, are any of these beverage companies going to be, you know, as big as, as hint? Uh, probably not. However, um, it is our way of voting with our wallets that we want this, these things to exist in the world. We want to, it's our way of voting and saying, we want more of these entrepreneurs to start and to scale. Um, and we're fortunate that we can do that now, but you know, the, my path has certainly been paved with um, way more failures than, than, than success. And, and that, that goes both for the business that I've created, but also even in terms of the way that I show up as a husband. 
I love that. And it's uh, very much in sync with what I tell people as well, that I know many people who have one store and they're quite happy, right? Or they just do one thing. They've never raised money. They make plenty of money. And uh, they want to know if they should expand, right? They want to. Yeah, know. we need to celebrate that totally. as much as we celebrate the IPO. Totally, and I think more and more you're giving people an opportunity to be able to expand, but also expand in their comfort zone when they just want to be living in that world, but also maybe a little bit uncomfortable, but something that is manageable for them that they aren't going to break the, the, the happiest. Uh, I'll finish with this, Kara. One of the happiest entrepreneurs I know, and there are you know more than 2 million stores on Shopify. So I, I know, I don't know all 2 million, but I know a lot of them. One of the happiest entrepreneurs I know, his name is Mike D. He makes Mike D's barbecue sauce. If anyone loves barbecue sauce, you should look it up. And he makes the world's best barbecue sauce out of North Carolina. And the reason he's so happy is because his small barbecue sauce company has allowed him to quit a job he didn't like to focus on something he loves, which is sharing his incredible Mike D's barbecue sauce with the world. And he is truly as thoughtful and mindful and happy and content and whatever adjective you want to use there. He is doing his life's work selling barbecue sauce. And if he sells more one year, great. If he doesn't, that's okay too. Because fundamentally what he's trying to do is he wants to be able to put food on his table uh, in a way that makes him truly happy and making barbecue sauce and sharing with the world is the way to do. And that, that goes back to sort of what we talked at the beginning of the of this conversation, which is the reason I think entrepreneurship is so amazing. It's not because, you know, it's a great way to make lots of money, although it can do that too, or a great way to, you know, share something with everyone in the world, which can do that too. It's because it's it's one of the best ways for human beings to self-actualize. Mm-hmm. And there and there are this is a very um, contemporary idea because if you think about entrepreneurship 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, most people couldn't become entrepreneurs because simply it was too expensive. And the one thing that we've done in the last 10 years, 15 years, not just because of Shopify, although you know we, we've played a bit of a role in that, but others, we've made it so that entrepreneurship, maybe for the first time ever, is actually accessible. And that accessibility of entrepreneurship means that more people can participate. And I think that's an amazing thing. No, absolutely. Well, I could talk to you for another hour. I mean, there's oh. so much good stuff. Thank you. And uh, yeah. we'll have to have you back for sure. Thank you again. And we will have lots of links in the show notes as well that share a little bit more about some of the brands that Harley mentioned too. So we'd love to have them on as well. I'd love that too. Yeah, I'm sure they'd love it. Thank you, Kara. This is uh, this is great. And thank you for being such an incredible proponent and supporter of entrepreneurs uh, around the world. It is, we need more people doing this and, and you're doing it so well. Thanks all for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And I want to thank all of our guests and our sponsors. And finally, our listeners, keep the great comments coming in. And one final plug, if you have not read or listened to my book, Undaunted, please do so. You will hear all about my journey, including founding, scaling, and building the company that I founded, Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks everyone for listening and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for 
anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.